0: Hello and welcome to The Rationable Podcast, your weekly deep dive into how science and critical thinking make you immune to scams, fads and hoaxes. I am your host, Avijit. Let's dig in. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rationable. We're having another Rationable interview, and this time with a prolific skeptic who has been around for <laughs> quite a while. I don't want to age you, but Leonard Trammell.
1: Oh, I've, I've aged enough all of my own.
0: <laughs> Leonard is uh, someone I met at Psycon, uh, which is I'm wearing the t-shirt in Las Vegas in 2018. and That was a uh, good time. Oh, it was a fantastic, fantastic weekend more than a weekend. It was, it was heavy and it was heavenly in many, many ways. Um, but Leonard is, has, is also a part of the Rational uh, Conversations group on Facebook. So if you haven't joined, you should jump in and we talk about all sorts of science, pseudoscience and beliefs, uh, of all sorts. And Leonard is kind enough to lend his time to come in and throw in a few comments here and there and correct us when we're, we're a little off the mark. Um, me included, of course, <laughs> which is always good because you need, always need to have uh, someone fact check you when you're a skeptic. But Leonard, welcome to Rationable. Welcome to the Rational interview. Thank you so much, Abhijit. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I actually put out a post on the group to ask people what they'd want to ask you. And of course, a lot of them are primarily to do with your time at Commodore and what Commodore did. But I'll get to those a little bit later. But first and foremost, I really want to get to know what were you like before you were a skeptic? Were you ever
1: not a skeptic? I don't think so. I've always so I I've, I've never been what you'd call a believer. Mm-hmm. Um, I was brought up in a fairly typical conservative Jewish home. Uh, we would go to a uh, synagogue, you know, a couple of times a year for the high holidays. Uh, we would occasionally do the every Friday night rituals, but quite rarely. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of discussion sort of interspersed through life about religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I never thought that this whole God idea made any sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It just... Just seemed ridiculous. Why would anyone believe this stuff given the way the world looks? It's clearly not, clearly (laughs) not organized and run by some supernatural intelligence or any intelligence at all.
0: No, that's Uh, uh, that is something, yeah, that's something I think I've always kind of intrinsically known that, and God only came up when I was not prepared for my school exams. And I'd be like, if there's a God out there, just get me through this and I'll promise I'll study for the next one and I'll go to bed on time.
1: <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. So my my first sort of introduction to the concept was very negative. Mm-hmm. So my parents were both survivors of the Holocaust. Oh, uh, so they were—they were, they were uh, as I like to call it, guests of the uh, Third Reich uh, in uh, summer camp. Although usually they're not called that, and it was, of course, all year long camp.
0: Uh, oh, that's so, that's hardly a camp.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's hardly not a camp hardly. Anybody camp anybody
0: wants to be a part of
1: Not not at all. And that was sort of the context in which religion was introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question of why would God do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and my answer was, no, God would. And this clearly happened. So why would you believe it a God?
0: Absolutely. In fact, uh, um... And the
1: idea of praying to this uh, monster mm-hmm. and uh, hoping to get something good out of it uh, didn't seem like a sensible thing at all. So, yeah, it's not not a not a an introduction that was conducive to being a a, a good mild mannered supporter of religion.
0: No, fair so enough. Not, fair enough. <laughs> so you weren't religious for sure, but what? Ha- I mean, when did that skepticism kind of overflow into um, into science and an interest in science and stuff like that? Uh, when when did you first I mean, I, I assume that you were interested in astronomy and fields like that, but where did that start? where your love for science start?
1: So that actually has a, a very abrupt beginning that I can date uh, it's It's been a few decades, but i it it all stems from a single event. My mm-hmm. older brother left a, a library book on the kitchen table uh, my memory says that it was uh, entitled The Sun, the Moon, and the Stars uh, by H.A. Ray, which is the author of the Curious George uh, series of uh, children's oh, books. He was also yeah, yeah. a uh, an amateur astronomer and wrote books about astronomy. I can't find that that book actually exists. So <laughs> my memory, like memory often is, is probably garbled in some way. But that's that's what I remember. And I remember reading the book, and being incredibly fascinated by the concept of astronomy and that stars were suns and the universe was just mind-blowingly large. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I'm not very imaginative, so that <laughs> that idea has and that fascination has stuck with me uh, over the last. Half century,
0: wow! No, that that's actually uh, it's uh, it's very similar to uh, where I first started getting fascinated with science. Though unfortunately, my maths has been so horrible that I've never managed to get into the science field personally. Um, but my fascination for it started when there was this children's book which I think my cousin had, and it came along with an audio cassette. It's the first audio book that I'd ever seen, and <laughs> it was uh, I. I' just I have for the life of me, I can't remember what the what the name of the book was, but it is about this kid who gets a robot for his birthday present or a Christmas present. And the robot kind of in the sun grows into this massive giant robot, and this starts off really small in terms of this giant robot and gets the kid to climb in and then they go flying around the solar system um and the robot educates him about each planet and the sun and, you know, and all these, you know, all these things. And when I listened to it, I read through it, and that got me hooked. And then I encountered Carl Sagan's Cosmos, which used to be aired here on national television, when I was like, seven years old. And just ever ever since then, I've just been super fascinated. Of course, that also led to me somehow starting to believe in aliens. But that's a different story. And I (laughs) <laughs> Enough about not, me, a, though. not
1: an uncommon side effect.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, we—I mean, we are kind of predisposed to think that you know aliens have probably arrived and have probably visited us. And I used to believe that. You know, I used to watch X Files and I got totally hooked into that. I want to believe and everything. But you—you you, uh, are associated with SETI, right? In some way, you're yeah. an advisor. Uh,
1: I, they recently started a thing called the SETI Advisory Board, um, and mm-hmm. I'm a charter—a charter member of that. I've been involved with SETI for just you know on and off as a as a supporter, as a don as a donor, and as a, a consultant um, oh. for twenty some years. I guess it's more like thirty. the The story of the connection is pretty funny.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: my wife, when she was pregnant with our first child went to the thing called a Lamaze class, a technique yeah. for breathing to make things easier. And one of the other mothers in the Lamaze class was a astrophysicist and planetary scientist that worked at a local NASA facility. Um, so the families got together. And she contacted me not long after the kids were born and said, you've been looking at accuracy in science textbooks and the like, uh, we're working on some curricular materials. Would you take a look? And I said, sure, uh, you know, just let me know. And she said, okay, I'll bring a few people together and we'll sit down and talk about it. Uh, so I walk into this room and there's the my friend and the director of education for the SETI Institute and Jill Tarter. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which was a, an interesting meeting, um, yeah, I'm sure. and I, and we we went through the I took the stuff home and have been working on and off with the SETI Institute for mm-hmm. things like with uh, on things like that um, ever since.
0: So uh, I guess you probably know if SETI is uh, hiding all the crashed UFOs
1: and aliens from us. Um, Are they? I haven't looked in every closet. In their building, I've been through most of the building. I've actually been up to the uh, Hat Creek Radio Observatory up in Northern California, which is mm-hmm. this big radio facility, radio telescope facility that they've built specifically for doing uh, SETI investigations. Um, there's a very large structure there, uh, but they mm-hmm. use it for building their antennas. I've been there. I've been in it. Walked through it. No aliens.
0: Damn. And NASA's not hiding them from us either, are they?
1: Um, as near as I can tell, no. <laughs>
0: okay. Uh, or you could just you could tell me, but you could have to kill me. <laughs>
1: uh, no, I, all the information I have says, says no.
0: Uh, all right. This is something that not only that I have already toyed with, the idea that uh, aliens have landed. And I've seen, I, I watched movies. I went with my mom when I was, I don't know, again, around six or seven years of of age and went to cinema halls and we watched the Bermuda Triangle and we watched movies about Roswell. And Steven Spielberg had an amazing miniseries called Taken, which I still have, which I watch every now and then, which is fantastic. It's all about the whole Roswell thing. And there's so many, there's so much, now we can call it even folklore that has developed from those incidents. But it's always kind of made me wonder like, What exactly would any government gain from hiding such a thing from us, even if they did? Even if we grant them that this is a possibility? I've never really got what they'd get out of it. It doesn't make sense. Like, okay, maybe military technology, I think a lot of people might say. But do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I've heard... Do you think it's uh, even possible?
1: uh, Possible that they're hiding it? Or possible possible that they visited
0: no, possible that uh, they could be, that that the government or NASA would be, or any government on the face of the earth would be, would have hid something like this from the public or would have even been able to hide such a thing from the public.
1: I don't think it's possible they could have hidden it for a, a whole variety of reasons. I mean, it's the uh, difficulty of keeping a large scale conspiracy hidden is well reported and understood. But even beyond that, in the case of NASA, there are so many scientists and so many technical people that care about very little other than truth. The idea of mm. hiding this and the, and the those people not talking about it is just absurd. Uh, so one of the wonderful things that I got to do, my PhD thesis was the result of a uh, instrument flown on the third flight of the space shuttle. So mm-hmm. I was actually in mission control for the, uh, the last week of March, 1982, when the, uh, space shuttle Columbia was on its third of four test flights. And my experiment was in the backseat and mm-hmm. the, uh, the kind of, um, personalities and the, the mindset of the people working at NASA, both in the Manned spacecraft center and at Kennedy, and then all the various science centers around the country, those people are not going to want to keep this secret. They just that's not what they do. They, yeah. uh, as Carl Sagan says, when you love, when you're in love, you want the whole world to know about it. These guys yeah. love space. They love science. They love knowledge. They just want to talk about it.
0: Yeah, and um, I've, I've noticed that in a lot of the documentaries that I've watched uh, when it comes to space documentaries, the passion that a lot of these scientists speak with, I mean, it's, it's infectious. And it, I mean, of course, it started with Carl Sagan and his infectious enthusiasm and passion for science and for astronomy. Um, and it kind of has infected us all, I think. And I, I'd yep. certainly, if I knew about that stuff, I, I'd sneak it out and put it somewhere, right,
1: for sure. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely it's um, it's not uh yeah and and you said it's at some point that you you think that we have this need to believe that there are aliens i think it's actually a more fundamental need we have a uh some portion of our brain when we see something happening we assume that it's the result of an agent something yeah. is making this happen so mm-hmm. if the wind makes the grass rustle it's evolutionary advantageous to think that that's a uh, a lion rather than the wind and if you see stuff happening up in space it's a thing doing that there's some something has some something's in charge and whether that something is an omniscient um old white guy with a very long beard Uh, Or it's a little green alien from Tau Ceti or something. Uh, Mm. I I think that's where it comes from. Uh, It's a very natural uh, phenomenon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I was, uh, I recently interviewed Richard Saunders from the Skeptic Zone podcast and Australian Skeptics. Uh And uh, he, too, he's, uh, he, of course, he did want, he did have this thing that he did kind of believe in aliens and you know UFOs but it was only after he realized that the distances that you'd have to travel to for anyone to travel considering the laws of physics stay in place and that nobody's figured out how to break the light the speed of light barrier that it would still take most aliens decades if not centuries if not millennia to get anywhere around the galaxy. And it sounds like, you know, it's, it's, it's very time. hard. Yeah, it's a very hard thing to really manage to do or be that motivated to do. I think, I think eventually, maybe we might give something like that a shot. But probes are probably a better idea. But at the same time, yes, coming back to yours, uh, what you were saying about agency, I think that is at the root of a lot of phenomena that kind of lead to pseudoscientific beliefs. Yeah. Don't you think? I mean, religion, of course, being one of them. Right. uh, But aliens is another, ghosts is yet another. Are there any others that you have encountered?
1: Well, ghosts, of course, are a big one. Uh, Ghosts, you know, and, and just malevolent spirits of all sorts. Uh, yeah. Not just uh, you know human ghosts, uh, mm. but you know spooks and in, in various things that go bump in the night. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: It's just going to be. Uh, it's all based on the same the same concept.
0: Yeah, I have I know people who believe in angels and all sorts of strange spirits, and especially of course uh, I. This is something that I'm recently getting very interested in because when I was Chatting with Susan Kerbik on one of her live uh, shows, she was asking me about India's psychics and ghost stories and stuff like that, and I was I was I was a little at a loss. (laughs) I I felt I was a little bit on my back foot because I've never really looked into the whole ghost thing. Of course, I used to believe in them when I was a kid, but it didn't really. I mean, it's not. I've kind of focused more on the medical side of things because I feel that is more of an uh, has a impact on our daily lives, but it is something which I'm very intrigued about, especially Indian ghosts. I've heard a lot of little, there are lots of folk tales and strange ones which go around. But my pet peeve, of course, is with alternative medicine. Speaking of, what is your pet peeve when it comes to pseudoscience and, you know, your skeptical activism?
1: Well, it's actually very simple. I like things to be correct. I have noticed. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sure you have. And anyone that spends any time interacting with me notices.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and part of it is truth matters. But for me, a bigger part of it is reality as we have slowly teased the information out. It's just this amazing thing the mm-hmm. The laws of physics and the the universe that is constructed this way is incredibly fascinating, and I don't I don't understand why anyone would want to not know that and to ignore the the glory and beauty and awe-inspiring wonder that is the natural world.
2: Uh, Absolutely, I.
0: R- yeah, reality so, and, is and, more wonderful so than
1: fiction. Get it, get it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Get it right and and appreciate what's real, because it's it's well worth appreciating.
0: Absolutely, and the uh, like. What you said about the the universe and its and the 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 laws of physics and the way things come together, uh, it reminds me of the anthropic principle, which I've read. I've read a book on uh, by Leonard Susskind, which is called The Cosmic Landscape, which is right over there. He's, he's a
1: great guy. I've taken yeah, a bunch of courses him? from him. Oh, I, 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 I had dinner with him, um, oh. which, was, which was fun. Yeah, so he, uh, up until a few years ago, taught a uh, continuing education course at mm-hmm. Stanford University. And I took several years of it.
2: Uh, oh, wow.
1: so, so I was in lectures with him uh once a week for a long time uh we share and we share a first name so yeah so it's uh so i've gotten to know him he's 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 a great guy and he explains incredibly esoteric things Mm -hmm. wonderfully simply with and never oversimplifying uh so one of the things that he does in his class is if some advanced bit of mathematics needs to be explained for you to understand this. He'll teach you the math. He won't skip it. He'll only teach you the absolute bare minimum necessary,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it's everything that's necessary. Uh, it's great. Uh, so he has a series of books uh, called The Theoretical Minimum, which mm-hmm. is the minimum amount of theory you need to. To know, to understand modern physics, uh, wow. and the, the the books are uh, basically an encapsulation of the classes that I took, uh, and they're just just fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah, the, cosmic, yeah, the cosmic landscape is a is a good one. It talks about the anthropic principle and the landscape of string theory, mm-hmm. and uh, how the the universe may be. Far larger and stranger than we, uh, than we currently think,
0: or the multiverse even. Um, right, like, that is something that had in, that still intrigues me to quite an extent because I, uh, I mean, the numbers that he speaks of in this book are mind-boggling. Like ten to, 10 to the, the, the power of 500. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ten to the power of five hundred yep. universes. I mean, you can barely wrap our heads around one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to think of. Those many, but at the same time, there are a lot of people who use the anthropic principle to justify a supernatural supreme being who has set all the numbers exactly right. Um, and of course, they don't, I mean, of course, uh, Leonard Susskind has gone into this, into the theory and into the science and the mathematics to explain how that is possible in this book, which is why I read it. But what would you say to those people who say that, you know, all the things, all the little numbers that are fine-tuned are because there is something turning the knobs and keeping things in control?
1: Well, there's there's a couple of of things. One is, if the universe is so carefully fine-tuned to make life for us possible, why is it only true on Earth? If you go one planet in closer, uh, it's hotter than a self-cleaning oven. Yeah. If you go one planet further out, uh, it's regularly below the freezing point of, of carbon dioxide. So you have dry ice everywhere and the air is so thin, uh, water boils and then freezes instantly. Uh, and those are the closest to us. Uh, you go in other directions and it gets even worse. Every place that we've seen will actively try to kill you at moments. This is not a very friendly, life-affirming universe. Uh, and if you have this all-powerful being, uh, why why would it turn out that way? Uh, the other point, us? and why just us? And well, maybe it isn't just us. Well, maybe not just but, us. Yes, true. Sure. But if the uh, if if the universe were tuned to make it good for us. Didn't, that was an awfully fine specification, down to just one part of one planet, because of course most of of Earth is ocean. We can't live in the ocean. True. Uh, so it, it, and we can't live uh, at the poles with any ease. Uh, the there are there are lots of places that are are quite inhospitable yeah uh, true. so, so that that's so that's directly. that's one thing. Then you have uh, another point of view, which is the idea that we would live in a universe that isn't conducive to life is absurd. Of course, we live where life is possible, because, yeah. if life were impossible, we wouldn't. Uh, I believe it was, um, Oh, what's his name? The guy that wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide. To Douglas the Adams. Douglas Adams said, yeah, Imagine I was thinking that exactly are, the same thing the yeah. puddle. Imagine that you're a sentient puddle of water. Look at this, the universe. It fits me perfectly. <laughs> well, of course it does. Yeah. You fit so, into it. <laughs> yeah, right. So the the fact that we grew up on a planet that is conducive to us being alive. Uh, is not so much evidence of uh, uh, a supernatural entity constructing the universe this way as a tautology. We live mm-hmm. where life can be because if life couldn't be here, we wouldn't be here.
0: Exactly, and yeah. which reminds me of this uh, this conversation we were also having on the group about life on Europa and huh? life on Europa, the moon uh, of Jupiter. Right, uh, and the possibility of life there, and from—I uh, mean, since this is this is the field that you're most interested in, that you studied, what is it that I mean? Of course, I think we do have um, an orbiter, which is already planned for Europa in the next few years, within this decade. The Europa Clipper. The Europa Clipper, um, right. which is probably going to go. Do some radio scanning, and there there are plumes coming out of Europa as well, right? Water. Uh-huh. So, what other things, and uh, what do you think would it would take to understand and detect life on Europa? At you know, what is the what are, what are the necessary things that we need to get done before we can actually achieve that?
1: Well, given how little we know, that's awfully difficult to to answer. Uh, Mm -hmm. If we're really, really lucky, it'll be very very easy. So one of the things that we see when we look at Europa with the highest resolution images we have is there are areas that look like uh, cracks in the Mm -hmm. ice crust. If those cracks happen frequently enough and they're big enough and there's enough life in the ocean underneath, then when they crack open, a plume of water will shoot out, blast some—I don't know—mermaids out uh, into space. <laughs> or octopuses. Well, <laughs> let's let, let's talk about mermaids or mermen. I don't <laughs> care either way. Either way, mer people. More people. Um, and they'll just be lying on the uh, crust. And if mm. we had high-resolution photography, we'd see them. Absolutely. So if we're really lucky, that's all we need.
0: Well, fingers crossed. We'll have to just see where that leads us, I guess.
1: And At the other end, you have maybe you never get, you know, a direct connection between space and the water. Uh, So what you're going to have to do is build some really sophisticated device that maybe through heat, uh, bores its way through kilometers of ice down into mm-hmm. the subterranean ocean, uh, spooling a long antenna back, and we'll have to take pictures uh, underneath. And that's when oh. we'll see the burp, and then that's when we'll see the burp people, or the bacteria, or <laughs> yeah. the squid, or whatever.
0: Oh, I yeah. would love to see that. I would. I can't wait for the day when you kind of we have cameras going down into that. Ocean, if it exists, which most probably it does, but there's
1: something there. There whether is something it's, there. Yeah, whether it's an ocean or a bunch of barely mobile brine, yeah, uh, is hard to tell. Uh, That's true. Uh, the though the information we have can't distinguish between the mm. two. So. Indeed, but we we
0: might have found signs of life much closer to Earth. Uh, you must have heard about the news about finding phosphine in the higher yes. atmosphere of Venus. What do you make of that? Is that what do you think is, are the possibilities that can come out of
1: that? Uh, so I've, I have not read the original paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that it's out yet. Uh, but I think it has been published. I just have, I haven't seen it um mm. and the reports i've seen range wildly in <laughs> the amount of phosphine so mm. i've seen everything from the clouds are mostly made of phosphine to phosphine is present at the 20 parts per billion range oh and i i don't know where it is in in between oh uh, My understanding, uh, I'm not a chemist. Uh, My understanding is that the issue is in a uh, bathed by ultraviolet environment with lots of carbon dioxide, phosphine would break down quickly. So Mm -hmm. if you have any noticeable amount of phosphine, it means it's being continuously generated. So what makes the phosphine? On Earth, lots of phosphine is made by nature in anaerobic uh, environments by bacteria. Does that mean it's the only place, only way it can be made? Uh, I—that's the question. Saw, yeah, I saw a uh, a headline for a discussion with some of the scientists at the SETI Institute, and mm-hmm. they mentioned that. Uh, phosphorus, uh, phosphine is the phosphor is the phosphorus analog of ammonia for nitrogen. So mm-hmm. NH3 is ammonia, PH3 is phosphine. If you have a source of energy and phosphorus, you can make phosphine. Mm-hmm. One of the things that people have thought about is active volcanism on Venus. Volcanoes Uh-oh. are going to produce lots of phosphates and phosphorus, uh-huh. and we may simply be seeing uh, some effluent from the volcanoes getting chemically manipulated and uh, exchanged with the uh, the upper atmosphere. I see. It, now it would still be cool to find evidence for active volcanism, current active volcanism on Mm -hmm. Venus. But it's not the same as as bugs.
0: That's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) We always hope more for bugs. Yeah, Um,
1: bugs, bugs, bugs could be cool.
0: Yeah. And of course the the Mars missions are not stopping at all. I mean they haven't found anything as far as life is concerned yet. But every single mission is digging that little bit deeper and a little bit more. So it's it's evidently it's not easy to determine where life may, might be hiding and how exactly to detect it because we still have that sample size of one, just us. So uh, we just have to keep well, we, thinking, have this, I guess. we have
1: a sample size of, of one uh,
0: of indigenous most life, people
1: f- yeah, most people find this uh, a strange concept, but there is no good definition of life.
0: Yeah, that is super hard and something that uh, something that eternally fascinates me is what exactly is life and especially now with the COVID-19 pandemic, the people have been talking about viruses a lot right. more and yes. this has come up repeatedly of trying to figure out is, whether... Is a
1: virus alive?
0: Exactly. We don't really have the answer for that.
1: Well, I, I think in some, for, I think there's a good reason for that, and that's mm-hmm. that a, a propensity of humanity, which is to put things in little pigeonhole boxes, yeah, um, is not the way the universe is built. So we like to have a box of living and a box of of non-living, and they're distinct and and clearly delineated, but there's mm-hmm. no reason the universe is built that way. Yeah. So, so we have we have life, and then we have you know unliving things, Mm. Uh, and then we have stuff like fire or viruses. Yeah, are those alive or not? And it it it, and it's it's unclear what the whether or not the discussion actually has any meaning. Um, And then you have the problem that getting to Mars is hard and putting lots of equipment on there is hard so you look at the uh, viking spacecraft that landed Mm -hmm. back in the mid-70s and there was a very simple chemistry experiment that was based on well if you did this experiment anywhere on earth if this result happened it would have been caused by biology Mm -hmm. So they sent that experiment to Mars, where the chemistry of the surface is completely different than the chemistry of Earth, and you got a result that matched (laughs) what it would be if it had happened on Earth because of life. But -hmm. the chemistry of Mars allowed that reaction to occur without anything that could, even under the most broad definition, be considered living. Very Uh, true. So – so you, you need to uh, – uh, so what they're doing with the most – so the, the ship that's on, their, on the way now, uh, the Perseverance rover, mm-hmm. is um, going to look for interesting samples, store them, mm-hmm. and put them in a, in a canister so that they can be picked up and brought home oh. by a Mars return mission that has yet been defined. But that's, that's the, the way that they are going to um, carry the, the search forward with Perseverance mm-hmm. is they have some fairly sophisticated uh, chemistry equipment on board, um, not to determine if there's living material in there or any biology at all,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but to see, okay, is this interesting and interesting enough that we want to take it back to Earth?
0: Hmm. I I'd love to see how that works out. <laughs> and it has a heli-
1: and it has a helicopter.
0: Yeah, I know. This little helicopter drone kind of thing. Oh, so that's gonna out. be awesome. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's let's switch gears here a little bit. Now, okay. When you Google your name, and I Google anyone Googles your name, um, a lot of what comes up is your time with Commodore your father and the microchip that got the, that revolutionized the world of gaming and computing. So I don't want to give anyone a history lesson. I would much rather that you did. So, (laughs) uh, (laughs) so uh, could you just tell us more about um, what exactly, how exactly Commodore came together, how your father was involved and how these, first chips came up
1: yeah so what it's you... it's a rather strange and varied and twisted story mm-hmm. um so my father as i mentioned earlier was a uh, uh a guest of the reich uh during yeah. uh, the second world war mm-hmm. uh, when he was liberated by the u.s army um he was in a displaced persons camp uh, and eventually uh, moved to the US, uh, wanting did, had no interest in staying in Germany, certainly didn't want to go back to Poland, mm-hmm. uh, had heard about America, had the opportunity to go, so he did.
2: Um,
1: I like to say that my parents were illiterate in three languages uh, <laughs> because they, they had no formal education. Their formal education was ended uh, in about the fourth grade, when uh, Germany invaded Poland, and um, so he knew no he knew no English uh, except what he picked up from his liberators and the people in the camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he came to the U.S. and promptly joined the army, which allowed him to learn more about Americans, got a, an opportunity to learn English, and uh, he was in the army twice. Uh, he w- was reenlisted uh, during the Korean War, and his job then was repairing typewriters for the uh, the army base near New York City.
2: Oh,
1: and when he left the army, he got the contract to continue being the typewriter service organization, which mm-hmm. got him into the typewriter repair business and the typewriter sales business. And then that gradually expanded into the office machine business, which uh, included mechanical adding machines and Mm -hmm. mechanical calculators, uh, which then a lot of those were made in Japan. So he uh, started traveling to Japan where he was then introduced to this uh, thing called an electronic calculator. Uh, mm-hmm. Which was the same size as a uh, as a mechanical calculator. Big, big things. Yeah. Um. And those eventually shrunk down. And the uh, so you've probably never heard of it, but there was a brand of calculator called uh, Bomar. A thing called mm-hmm. the Bomar Brain. Though in the early '70s, uh, the uh, largest calculator brand.
2: No, That's a uh, bit
0: before my time.
1: Yeah, they were made by, uh, so they were made with a, uh, uh, a microchip produced by, I think theirs was, uh, like most others, was Texas Instruments. Texas Instruments mm-hmm. decided to go into the calculator business um, and as a result drove everyone else out of it. Cool. So Bomar, Bomar ceased to exist um, in a, a flash. Uh, my father, who a good portion of Commodore's business at the time so Commodore is the company he founded uh, to start this uh, typewriter and office machine business mm-hmm. um, Most of the re- of the uh, revenue was from selling electronic calculators. And uh, he said, in his typical, uh, rather flamboyant style, um it's not so easy to kill me i'm not ready to I'm not ready to die yet um, and uh he found a a company that made electronic calculator parts that was in financial trouble, mm-hmm. so it was available for a song uh in comparison to the value that was actually there, and one of the other products that this company, by the name of MOS Technology, made was a thing called the 6502 microprocessor.
2: Hmm.
1: The guy that designed the 6502 microprocessor, uh, well, one of the guy in charge of the design, there were a, a bunch of absolutely wonderful, brilliant people. Uh, mm-hmm. But Chuck Petal was, uh, was one of the main designers and, and the sort of motivation behind the whole thing. Had a plan. He wanted to make a world with ubiquitous built-in computing. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Robert Heinlein's science fiction?
0: Uh, somewhat. I have heard it. I've heard yeah. of him, but I haven't right. read of uh, read any of his work, unfortunately.
1: So there's a wonderful short story called "The Door into Summer." It's a time travel mm-hmm. story where the protagonist goes into the future, and this future is a world of ubiquitous computing. Everything has a computer built into it, and it just makes everything easy. And um, Chuck wanted to live in that world. And for computing to be ubiquitous, people need to be comfortable with computers. Mm -hmm. So to be comfortable with computers, you need to have personal computers, which means they need to be powerful and inexpensive. And to do that, you need an inexpensive computation core. So he designed the 6502 or motivated the 6502 to be that. The next step was to make the personal computers. So when Commodore bought MOS, he went to my father and said, look, I'm going to do this. I'll do it with and for you if you want. That'll make it easier for both of us. If you Mm -hmm. don't, I'll leave and I'll do it on my own. (laughs) And my dad went, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. What what is this? And he came home and asked me. So I'm How old are you then? Twenty. Okay. So he asked us, you know, Punk, what do you think? And I went, I don't know. I'm not sure what he's talking about. I said, okay, come and meet him. Mm-hmm. So we flew down to an industrial Uh, microcomputing exposition where they were showing off how easy it was to develop things with this uh, processor. And we had a chat for about an hour and a half, mostly talking about that Robert Heinlein story Mm -hmm. and how Chuck wanted to live in that world. But he had a a very clear vision of how this would work. And uh, I said, sounds good to me. Dad said, "What do you think?" I said, "Sounds good to me." So he went to Chuck and said, "You've got six months. Build the machine." So we did. So uh, from from sort of design inception to the January nineteen seventy seven Consumer Electronics Show in uh, Chicago, uh, Mm -hmm. we went from uh, thoughts in Chuck's head. To a machine that almost worked.
0: Wow. So that was Something, the first PC, so to speak.
1: So there were three PCs that came out that year mm-hmm. uh, the Commodore PET, the Apple II, and the Radio Shack TRS 80. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unclear which one was shown to the public first. Mm-hmm. Uh, the. The PET that we took, or that actually wasn't there, the PET that was taken to the Consumer Electronics Show um, did not work on its own. It needed to be hooked up to the development machine, and we uh-huh. eventually figured out that was because it was missing a single resistor that we had <laughs> forgotten to put in. Um, so it wasn't on display to the public, but anyone that came to the Commodore suite could see it. Mm-hmm. So... It's unclear whether that's a public showing or not. There was an Apple II that was shown a couple of months later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which one was the first? We're not really sure. Uh, but it was certainly one of the first. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I worked on that. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was uh, rather spectacular. And after a year working on that, my curiosity got the better of me and said, there's still more stuff to learn Mm. and more stuff to know i want to go and get a phd in physics Uh, so i left commodore and uh um enrolled at columbia university uh, Mm. and got a phd in astrophysics wow (laughs) Um, and then when when that ended uh at by the most ridiculous coincidence and timing My father had a uh, huge falling out with the chairman of the company Mm -hmm. and quit and said he was going to start his own
2: company. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Was I (laughs) going to go work for, you know, some. I was thinking of getting, you know, trying to get a job at at Bell Labs or IBM or something, or going into physics, or mm-hmm. working for Dad. And um, he actually wound up buying Atari from uh, Warner Communications. So mm-hmm. I went from graduate student in physics to vice president of software for Atari in six weeks. Wow. Okay. Which was. Quite a, quite a change of mindset. <laughs>
0: yeah, I would think so. And yeah. Atari, I think, uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of people are, of course, very fond of Atari. As in, it was one of those initial, you know, one of the biggest gaming consoles in, you know, yeah. in the very beginning.
1: So and when they used the same
0: chip. They uh, the sixty five hundred two.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the sixty five hundred two was in basically everything. Um, mm. All of the 8-bit computers made by Apple, Commodore, and Atari, as well as the Nintendo Entertainment System, um, were all 6502-based. Some of the technology in the ARM microprocessors Mm -hmm. is licensed by um, uh, the design lab that owns the intellectual property of the 6502. So oh. basically, your your so all of your fo- all of our phones are based on that technology as well. Totally
0: do. This is two. exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: as is. So this. they're not
1: 6502. Right. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, but that's it's, where it started. Right. This is that's
1: what. Yeah. Gave so the 6502 to it started it all, um, and it's 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 pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, it is. So that that
0: so that was fun. That's nice. Like, and and coming to this, I've got a couple of questions which a couple of people in the group have asked. Actually, um, first of all, are you working on anything related to gaming or computing right now? No. Okay. Uh,
1: I, have you? I've stayed stayed out of that. Uh, yeah. As, but, you uh, out on the, as you pointed out on the group, I'm retired. Not uh, doing any of that stuff.
0: I didn't want to assume anything. I wanted to ask you first. Of course. Um, And uh, so, but have you seen uh, these, the new gaming consoles and the new uh, laptops and, you know, the kind of madness that's been going on, especially with gaming, like the new Xbox has just come out uh, or has just been announced. And the PlayStation has also come out with this strange alien looking Device? Have you encountered them? Have you seen how they perform? Do you have any thoughts on how I haven't it seen the newest? Out?
1: Yeah, I haven't hmm. seen the newest things. Um, the uh, hardware, you know, the graphical hardware is astonishing. Um, yeah. I've also seen the new, in uh, or at least seen the uh, uh, the the demos of mm-hmm. the new uh, graphics cards from NVIDIA. Yeah, and they're just mind blowing. They they look <laughs> like they look cinematic. It's just it's ridiculous. The real time yeah. ray tracing is just amazing.
0: And uh, I remember the uh, the presentation that NVIDIA made where they recreated the moon landing uh-huh. completely CGI with light right. reflections and everything. It was phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a generation back.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's, yeah, it's yeah now it's gotten it, mind blowing. Yeah, so so the, the stuff's the stuff's incredible. Um, at some level, it's hard to uh, keep your eye on the ball mm-hmm. and make sure the games are fun and not yeah. just make them cinema. Yeah. So people talk about uh, gameplay. And say, how could you make a game where you just had a couple of pixels for a car? <laughs> yeah. how, how can you do that? But the fact is our human imagination is yes. awfully powerful. Oh, uh, yes. And you, you can have fantastic gameplay uh, without having fantastic graphics.
0: I mean pong is still so incredibly fun like yeah <laughs> i used to play that when i was a kid i, I played it on my phone i mean there's so yeah, many I mean, different pong, versions of it now
1: asteroids breakout yeah. all those things yeah. are just fun fun games
0: yeah uh, and they don't have to be extremely high tech and a lot of the new games that are coming out on phones they're also like they they're proudly 8 bit you know like right. they because people still love that inter, that interface they're, there are people who are doing song covers in 8-bit, which you can watch on YouTube, which is <laughs> just incredible and, stuff. And,
1: and most of those are done on emulations or occasionally actual hardware of the Commodore 64. Ah, man, that is uh, the astounding. The sound chip in the Commodore 64 was an amazing device. Uh-huh. Uh, the SID or sound interface device was a, was a great machine. Uh, really, really, quite amazing uh, I, I,
0: could you tell me more? I, I'm not too hardcore into computing, but this is getting very intriguing. <laughs> like what is up with that uh, with that sound? so device? that
1: that chip had um, the best uh, pitch uh, clarity. So you mm-hmm. could uh, make a tone uh, anywhere from subsonic to near the, the the top end of what uh, the human ear can hear or, or the high end of a piano with one half hertz accuracy. Ooh. So you could hit an exact frequency um, and mm. any frequency within the range, uh, which made it just beautiful for making music. And it had, I think, three oscillators with different kinds of waveforms you could produce and on-chip digital filtering. To be able to produce all sorts of wonderful sounds so it was just just an enormous improvement over any other machine uh, from a sound point of view uh, that was, so it, it was, it was but, really quite amazing and now
0: the kind of things like i mean even i am uh i do a lot of uh, you know i i do of course my podcast my i record music with my band and we kind of reproduce it and i edit everything on the computer and and the kind of electronic music that is coming out nowadays is also like phenomenal like it's it's hard to imagine that just 3 decades ago or a little bit more than 3 decades ago things were at that level but at that level of precision but even now you can have almost exact replications of acoustic instruments which can be completely yep. synthesized it's it's yeah incredible
1: yeah so the last thing i worked on at atari was a video game system called the jaguar Uh uh, which had a uh, digital signal processor uh, for doing the sound and Mm -hmm. there were lots of different ways to do sound one was a fully synthetic um, sound generation uh, system uh, that was written in dsp assembly language uh, by me wow Uh, that was fun (laughs) so i i learned a lot about um, Sound synthesis uh, by writing the uh, the synthesizer for that. Now,
0: sitting right next to me is my guitar processor, which is a Line Six Helix, which has got two DSPs built in, and uh-huh. it can it takes the signal from my guitar and can pretty much and pretty to a pretty close proximity make my guitar sound like it is run through a certain series of replicated amps and, and guitar pedals. Right. And it's got the preamp, it's got room reverb. It sounds like the sound is coming straight out of that amp without me right. having that amp. It's yeah. just, it's it's mind-blowing. And my guitar too is is a bit of a feat because it's, it's the Line 6 Variax, which takes the, which has piezo pickups. It takes that signal and it can make my guitar I don't know how familiar you are with guitars, though. A bit,
1: yeah. yeah. So I see, but I can see make... a bass and a and a six string behind you. Yeah.
0: So the six string is the Variax, which can basically, right. I can change the tuning at, at the flick of a switch, at the turn of a knob. I can change the tuning completely, and I can make it sound like a Les Paul or, a, or a Stratocaster. Or, you know, it's just <laughs> it's incredible. Like the kind of the, the seriously, the human ingenuity is absolutely is
1: and by changing the software <laughs> you could take the output of your guitar and make it sound like a flute absolutely and, and
0: technically <laughs> i can do that there are i haven't figured out how to do that yet but i can take that guitar plug it into my computer have it sound like a flute or a piano or whatever the hell that's right. i want
2: yeah. because it's a midi you instrument know, you, as well you
0: could you can you play the harpsichord yeah <laughs> i know it's absolutely yeah it's mind-blowing but I, uh, now we've now of course the computing power has been growing steadily and exponentially over I'm not the sure decades. It's expo-
1: I'm not sure okay, it's so not exponential anymore. Well, it was for a while. So Moore's law of you know the and there's lots of different incarnations of that concept, mm-hmm. but basically uh, a doubling of processing power every 18 months or so uh yeah. has been going on for a while it's slowed way down
2: mm. uh
1: it's it's, <laughs> so, it's not it's not, not, not so fast anymore
2: yeah
0: but it's it's not dead yet it's still developing right
1: sure mm. uh and there was a there's been a, a recent uh fairly large jump but if you have a oh uh, 10-year-old PC, mm-hmm. uh, you can put the newest operating systems on it and it'll run just fine. Absolutely. Uh, and that was not true 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. I mean, especially Mac, uh, like Apple has been so good with supporting old machines. And I I used my last MacBook Pro, I, I mean, my first MacBook Pro I used for almost a decade. Um right. And it's, I mean, it's, it's fantastic how they just keep making the software still compatible with the old machines. But last night, I was watching their uh, night over here, morning over there. <laughs> uh, Apple just launched their new line of iPads and their new chip, which is the A14, which, of course, again, I am extremely newbie when it comes to, well, I am a newbie. When it comes to uh, computers and what things on chips mean, but it, they said that this new chip is got is five nanometer, uh-huh. which they're they're measuring. Uh, so, what exactly does that mean?
1: So that's a a a, a specification called the feature size.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when you build a uh, a semiconductor, or, uh, an integrated circuit. Uh, just think of it as, as little blocks of of silicon that have impurities in them so that they act as transistors and the wires that connect them. How small? What is the smallest size that the typical item on this will be? So a wire connecting mm-hmm. the input of one to the output of another is five nanometers wide, which is... Rather small. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they said that you have to measure things in atoms now. And it's yeah. challenging it's, the uh, laws of physics.
1: Well, it's, it's challenging the, uh, it's, it's running into uh, considerations of quantum mechanics. Yeah. Uh, where you have to deal with the individual characteristics of individual atoms instead of the bulk characteristics of the material and it, mm-hmm. it, it behaves differently. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a problem. So there's, there's a couple of problems. One is as the scales get smaller in order to fit onto a chip of a manageable size, mm-hmm. um, the, the number of atoms involved is shrinking, and that makes things more complicated. Uh, plus the bulk material is smaller, so it's harder to get the heat out yeah and as things every time they switch they generate a little pulse of heat so as the clock frequency goes up you need to be able to cool these things Mm. and all those things working together makes it hard for it to get faster uh, for computation
0: yeah a lot of these older like a couple of Years older MacBooks have had a lot of heating issues and have had to be throttled. But how do you? Right. Uh, where do you see the evolution of these microchips going? Like, how far do you think it'll go, if any further?
1: That's every time someone has that I know of that has tried to predict this, they've gotten it wrong. Uh, <laughs> as as Yogi Berra said, predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. Um, <laughs> People are smart. Uh, There's lots of ingenuity. There's lots of chemistry that can be brought to to bear. Uh, Mm -hmm. It'll probably keep improving. I doubt there's going to be any major breakthroughs that don't involve new materials, Mm -hmm. Uh, but new materials are being thought of all the time and we'll get them. Uh, How far it'll go is unclear.
0: Um, I think it's exceeded expectations at every generation, pretty much.
1: Well, it all depends on how high uh, your expectations are.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And this quantum computing is starting up now with qubits and yeah, whatnot.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll see if that if that goes anywhere.
0: Yeah, um, it's still very, very nascent.
1: Yeah, quantum computing is, at some level, it's a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> there aren't a lot of things that quantum computers can do that will be that will uh, where they'll do them better than mm-hmm. traditional computing, um, but there are some, and it'll be interesting. Uh, I think technology is a is a great thing to develop all for its own. Let's make Absolutely. new technology I'm... and see how people figure out how to use it.
0: Yeah, I'm eternally fascinated with computers. Like I, I always, I can't always afford it. But I always want to have the next the new iPhone or the new MacBook or something of that sort. Because it's just amazing to see the kind of things they do like in, like now with uh, uh, what is it, the LiDAR scanners, which have come out in the new iPads to make AR easier. Like it just it boggles the mind. But Okay, I, I want to wrap things up a little bit, but I before we go, I wanted to ask you one thing, which I have had a discussion, I've had discussions with about this with a few people, and everybody obviously has a different answer, which is why I especially want to ask you, what is the most dangerous pseudoscientific idea out there
2: in the world today, do you think? In your opinion, of course. So... I'm going to take a
1: a different approach to Mm. that than I think most people do. And it's not a specific pseudoscience, but it's the idea that expertise not only doesn't matter, but doesn't really exist. Mm. The idea that your opinion on a scientific matter is just as valid and useful and important as the understanding that is the result of decades of world-class experience. Absolutely. That's the most dangerous thing.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is something that even I I noticed recently. I don't know if you've heard about the uh, Sushant Singh Rajput's uh, suicide. Which is a, I have not. Uh, he's a very prominent, uh, very talented young Bollywood actor, who also was a promoter of science. He had visited NASA. He'd uh, he was a lover of astronomy. He had his own telescope. He had sent children to NASA for uh, to get educated and to get um, you know to give them to show them some support and kind of enthuse, get them enthused about science. And he committed suicide a few months ago, a couple of months ago. And That's a ever since then, yes, it is a terrible loss. And unfortunately, the Indian media has turned it into an absolute circus where they have accused his girlfriend of, uh, you know, drugging him and, you know, not treating him and that they're refusing to believe that he had depression or and all sorts of nonsense. But I don't want to dive too deep into that. The interesting thing was that... Um, Another friend of the show, Dr. Sumaya Sheikh, who I'd interviewed uh, a few weeks ago, she is a neurophysiologist. Mm-hmm. And she commented, uh, so there, and there's another celebrity called Kangana Ranaut who had mentioned that there is no physiological test. There's no test that you can have for depression. There's no physiological sign. And Dr. Sumaya Sheikh said, please stay in your lane because there are physiological signs of depression. And there are certain scans that can detect it. And a Bollywood actress, who has absolutely no expertise in mental health, in neuroscience, or in anything close to that field, is telling a neuroscientist who has been studying this for years, that she's wrong. And that, right, it, like, this is exactly the problem. And it's, <laughs> I, it just, it boggles the mind how we can, like, if I was to, if I had an opinion on, say, life on Mars or anything of that sort, I would defer to someone like you who has the expertise in astronomy, someone maybe who is more active in the field, maybe somebody from SETI, to inform me and to correct me if I was wrong. It's just intellectual um, dishonesty. And there's a complete lack of humility about your own way of thinking. And I think... uh, Was it you who said that you know humility in thought, and in uh, in your understanding is a very important aspect of skepticism?
2: So
1: I've I've said that many times. It's the uh, uh, so there's been a couple of of articles written recently uh, that go into that. Um, So Michael Marshall, who Mm -hmm. is one of the most wonderful people in skepticism. And an incredibly effective uh, person has mm-hmm. recently taken over the editorial position at U.K.'s um, skeptic magazine, Skeptic. Mm-hmm. Um, and his introductory article as um, editor makes that point that one of the most important things to realize is expertise matters, and we're not all experts.: Yeah. Uh, none of us are experts in everything. Only a few of us are experts in anything. So yeah. if you're an expert in the process of skepticism, great. Use that to figure out what knowledge you need to get, or what questions you need to ask to actual subject matter experts. Absolutely. And that doesn't um,
0: constitute an argument from authority. That's just exactly it <laughs> wrong.
1: Right. Um, the cover article of the most recent Skeptical Inquirer um, mm-hmm. by Scott Lilienfeld um, talks about the importance of intellectual humility. Um, one of the chapters in the Skeptics Guide to the Universe, the book from the Skeptics mm-hmm. Guide to the Universe,
2: oh, uh, which yes. is a great
1: book, I I, love it. I, uh, I highly recommend it, is um, about that. Uh, uh, about that concept as well. I'm trying to remember the, the fancy term that Steve Novelli uses for it.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, neuropsychological humility. Ah, uh, yes. And it's, so there, there's, there's lots of different aspects to it. So Steve's um, concentration is, it is a natural effect, a side effect of the way our minds work for us to get mm. the wrong answer. There are yeah. lots of ways that we get things wrong, and we don't notice. Absolutely. So we need to constantly be on the lookout for our own failings. That way, then there's the limited capacity that our puny little minds have. Uh, mm. I know a lot about astronomy, astrophysics, and computing. I don't. I know barely enough to get in trouble. <laughs> when it comes to biology, when it comes to uh, other areas of history, um, any any of the, of the uh, social sciences, I know virtually nothing. Uh, I don't even know enough to be dangerous.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, and that's after a a lifetime of trying to, you know, suck information into my head. <laughs> we we don't know we we can't know
2: absolutely uh, and
1: we and we need to to uh to embrace that fact. I was having a, a talk with some friends, and someone mentioned something, and i said well that's that's not really right uh, it it's you you need to to have an appreciation of of how complicated this really this is, and that uh description. Is basically wrong. And the pushback was, well, no, most people have a pretty good idea. (laughs) And I said, no, most people on most things don't know anything. And that includes every world class expert in every subject you've ever met. There is no one that knows a lot about a lot. Exactly. There's so much known now that in order to know a lot about anything, you have to narrow the field down so that you know an awful lot about virtual nothing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and that's as good as you can get.
0: Absolutely. And there are people who quote Nobel Prize laureates in one field when talking about a completely different field that they haven't. A clue about, or they have only a superficial amount of knowledge about, and have probably got a lot of biases, a lot of bad science, a lot of bad information. And yeah. you're perfectly—I mean, you're in your rights to create your own theories and hypotheses about things. But when it comes to pseudoscience, just because a person is a Nobel laureate or an engineer or an architect doesn't mean that they know
1: exactly what they're talking about when it yeah, comes so to completely I, I, different. So I've fields. had this discussion with people on global warming.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Global warming is complicated. Yeah, the, the math, the physics, the computation involved is complicated. And I say, okay, you think that you understand global warming enough to say these models are wrong. How do you feel about the mass of the Higgs boson? <laughs> and they look at me and go, what does that have to do with anything? So, well, the the physics and mathematics of computing or understanding the ramifications of the mass of the Higgs boson is simpler than the analysis necessary to do a global climate circulation model. Absolutely. Why do you think you know enough to talk about one when you know nothing about a simpler one, and wouldn't dare? To even mention a preference. The fact that you experience weather every day does not mean you know anything about climate. Absolutely. (laughs) So one of the things that's missing from the way education works is we don't ever teach children anything to the point where they actually can feel what it feels like to master a subject. So they'll get a passing familiarity Mm. and they don't know that that's different (laughs) than a really deep understanding. So I've heard about weather because I feel it every day. Weather (laughs) is kind of like climate. So I should be able to have an opinion. And... (laughs) Uh, no, <laughs> it just it just <laughs> played. No, it's yeah, a Trump so, thing too. Yeah, that's that's well, that's a. I, I fear that's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, at some level, he it seems like he doesn't even care about reality.
0: I know. Seriously, it's a, He's on a different planet altogether. It's just unfortunate. It's the. you Still yeah. have to coexist. Scary times. Yeah, I,
1: I I try not to to use his name. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah. If for all the Americans who are watching this, please go vote. It's very important for you guys and for the rest of the world. Um, I,
1: but... uh, I I hope that uh, I hope things go out uh, go better than they did uh, the last time.
0: So do I, for all of our sakes, for and yeah. for the sake of science and common sense and just humanity on the whole. Just, you know.
2: <laughs> a couple of
0: important things depend on it. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you so much. I, first, You're before so we leave, uh, where can people find you? Where can they chat with you? Is there some place that can see some of your work or your talks? Uh,
1: so I don't have a lot of talks online or anything like that. But if you if you search for me on YouTube, um, there's a couple of things. I did a uh, a TEDx interview a few years ago. Yeah, um, what's that? Which uh, that nice. which worked out uh, nicely. I've done a I did a talk for Silicon Valley Skeptics um, mm-hmm. about uh, cosmology. Uh, that's online. Um, I I think if people want to chat, they should uh, uh, join the Rational Conversations Facebook group. I think that's a wonderful idea. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hear I hear the guy that runs it is 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 a nice person.
0: I, I, I hear that too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much uh, for no, no uh, for this conversation. I'm sure this will be one of many more coming up in the future. Thanks so much for being on the show. And I will see you back on the group.
1: And hopefully at SciCon in not too long.
0: Hopefully, yeah, same here. I'm going to be at yeah. Skepticon, I hope for at least a bit on the first day. In Australia, I don't know what time it's going to be for you guys, but it's going to be 3 a.m. to 11 a.m. at my time, which is going to be pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm not sure how much of that I'm going to catch live. Yeah, uh, I'll just have but to watch I the replay certainly videos. In, certainly intend to watch the replay videos. They've got some fantastic speakers.
0: Um, yeah, I know. Exactly.
1: And and, and the uh, uh, there's, there's a bunch of really great skeptics in Australia.
0: Absolutely. Richard Saunders being one of the top ones.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Great, great guy. Absolutely.
0: Thank you very much again. And I will see you later. Have a good night. Take care, Abhijit. Be good. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Rationable Podcast with me, Abhijit. For the show notes, transcript, references and further reading, visit www.berationable.com. Let's continue the conversation on The Rational Conversations Group on Facebook and at BeRationable on Twitter. If social media is not your thing, you can also write to me at abhijit at berationable.com. If you enjoyed the episode, consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. Until next time, be rational.